slum, 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 gullion, slum, gullion, we've got season two of the slum, gullion, Jeff and Scott still host the slum, gullion, I still don't know what that word means, slum, do, 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 slum, gullion, we still got some guests on the slum, gullion, we're not showing breasts on the slum, gullion, should probably fade on the Hello and welcome to a very, very, very special episode of the Slum Gullion, America's only podcast. I am Jeff Holland. Several uh, time zones behind me is Scott Clevenger. And the reason it is so special, dear friends, is we have a guest. Also joining us, several time zones behind from me, but in the same time zone as Scott, I present so happily executive producer showrunner of the fox television series sleepy hollow please welcome mr albert kim massive applause yay <laughs> thank you thank you i'll expect now, that applause with every answer i give uh, you may get them because <laughs> I, I i need to i'll be pg i need to blow a little smoke up your butt if i may please do all righty. Now, I remember years, about about four years ago, hearing that um, Sleepy Hollow was going to be a thing. And um, I was a little bit reticent at first, mostly because all I knew about it was that time travel was going to be involved. And I'm not going to lie, this is going to get me in trouble, that the people who were, who, some of the people who were involved in the Star Trek reboot were involved. So I was a little scared by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people were a little skeptical, sure. Okay, okay. I watched the first episode, and I have watched every episode since the first episode when it aired. Yep. Or within a week. I have been with Sleepy Hollow since the beginning. Um, I was with it in what some people would may, may call the dark times. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have um, and the show I guess you could say has um, gotten a bit of resurgence this year by doing a complete and total fracking reboot which <laughs> we'll get to we'll get to that in a second I but, just uh, uh, I'm gonna throw in real quick just, yeah. just uh, my background is I watched the show from the, I actually like the Star Trek reboot I know I'm gonna get hate mail for that not um, for me I understand I, uh, I watched it first season, fell in love with it, watched it in the second season. It was more of a rocky relationship. It was, it wasn't me, it was them. Kind of bailed out at the end of the second season, took the show off the DVR. Mm -hmm. And then Jeff uh, talked me into giving it a, another try this season. And generally, he gives good advice. Generally, when he likes something, I, I like it. So I went back to it this season, and I have to say, it's a complete 180. I am right back to where I was enjoying it. The Yay! level. I'm glad to hear that. So. Yeah. I told you, Scott. I, I, think, I, told you. I think all of that, I think all of that's a really fair assessment. I mean, the show has been, had its ups and downs. A lot of people have noticed that. Uh, and uh, some of it is stuff that's been discussed. Some of it is stuff that really can't be discussed a whole lot. I'll tell you, my history with the show, which um, uh, always amazes me how things work in television, uh, I was working on the final season of, the, of Nikita on the CW. By the way, I was yay at, for that. Uh, Real fast, yay thank for you, that. Thank you. I that, was, that was a lot of fun. I loved both movies that that show was based on. I never thought a series based on two different movies would work. And oh my God, you knocked that show out of the park. 
Oh, yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. We all loved doing that show. And at the end of that last season uh, of Nikita, I was at Comic-Con with my daughter, showing her around. And we were wandering around... Uh, we were on her on the floor. She was really interested. It was, it was all very cool. And then, you know, as, as you do at Comic-Con, started to get a little tired, wanted to sit down a bit. And we wandered past some of the, um, some of the panels. And there was one, the only one really that had seats open uh, was for this new Fox show. So we went in, sat down. It was Sleepy Hollow. They were showing the pilot of Sleepy Hollow. Oh. Now, I wasn't involved with the show. We sat down. We watched the pilot got a real big kick out of it we sat mm -hmm. there and watched the panel with bob and alex and lynn and phil Escove and a whole bunch of people tom meisen um and really really enjoyed it thought it was great uh little did i know that uh less than a year later i would be working on the show so that's how things work in tv you never know where you're going to end up uh it wasn't something that i i had intentionally sought out but um uh, my agent had contacted me uh, not long after and said that they were looking for some people uh, on the show. Uh, I met with them. It worked out really well. I ended up joining the show by, by the end of the first year and stayed with it ever since. So uh, cut fast forward to, I don't know, two seasons later, and now I'm sitting up on the panel at Comic-Con <laughs> representing the show. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm on the other side of the coin there. So it's been an interesting ride personally as well as professionally for me. But uh, everything, all things said, it's been it's been a lot of fun. And you know, like as you guys noticed, the show has had its ups and downs, and, and a lot of things were responsible for that. And uh, not some a lot of it is is uh, creative, and uh, we'll I'll own up to a lot of that, and we can discuss specific things if you want. And other things were a bit outside of our control. But well, of course, of course. To speak speaking specifically to this season, uh, I'm glad to hear you guys were both on board because this was a really big challenge for us, sort of and, rebooting the show after the monumental events of last season. And I'm glad. And we will get to off. that. We will definitely sure. get to that in a second. But before we get to the uh, the reboot aspects, which is this is this is something that absolutely fascinates me, I do want to talk about last week's episode. Okay. Now then, um, as we do a thing here on the show called the Unknown Movie Challenge, where Scott and I watch a film that it, usually both of us or at least one of us has never seen before, okay? Mm -hmm. And any genre, but and I tend to watch the, the, the um, films the day of the recording. Scott does the research, he's more analytical, I'm more gut, just watched it. Well, I just watched your episode. Mm-hmm. And, and? Um, I, I'm, go I'm going to cuss here so you can bleep if you want. Sorry, standards and practices. Holy fuck, that was amazing. <laughs> I'm done now. No, no, no bleeping necessary. Yeah. Okay, all right then. That Dude, that was phenomenal. Thanks. It was, it was a lot of fun, and it's something that we all worked very hard on, so I'm glad, that, I'm glad you liked it. Now, I have to tell you, the, the moment in the episode that absolutely just... Th didn't, I won't say throw me, but I just sat there the entire sequence going, oh yeah, oh yeah, was um, Molly, Sarah in Crane's mind. Uh-huh. That yeah. entire sequence, and what I thought was so brilliant, if I may, again, blowing more smoke up your butt about it, was I loved the fact that we're figuring out what's going on as she is. Yeah, no, that was really important. In a lot of ways, that episode is uh, it could have easily been t titled uh, Laura's story because it's yes. the story of her backstory 
told primarily from her point of view. Um, and it was it was important because we needed to fill it after the big shocking reveals of the end of episode 11. We needed to fill in a lot of the blanks. And that's why we what we were trying to do in this episode, as well as and this is important emotionally, is get the viewers on her side because she is a mysterious character who's just been introduced one episode before. And we're asking a lot of the audience to accept her as a role as, a, as an important person on this team. Um, and, you, and you can't just do that by saying, oh, she's grown up Molly, and uh, so, sure, you're going to like her. But you have to actually have that happen emotionally. You have to create that emotional bond with her. And in order to do that, you've got to create ways to sympathize with her and, and have, have the audience, have the viewer be on her side and go through the experience with her. So that was a big, um, that was one of the big uh, things we set out to accomplish with this episode. You know, I have to say, as far as uh, the... Mara Molly thing. Uh, the, the the one thing that the one uh, big reservation I had when I started back in the season was, oh, there's an adorable Moppet in the cast. <laughs> yeah. And I I have to say that uh, I I'm fairly healthy, but I do have a strong allergic reaction to dairy products and the cousin Oliver syndrome. So, so whenever a child is, is introduced, it's really it's it raises the, the bar much higher. Uh, the, the show has to be that much more charming for me to get over that. And then I and then it's like, oh, hey, she's not she's an adult. OK, that's great. Now I don't have to look at her as a kid. That's that's terrific. Now, but now I like her more. Actually, it's funny. When she was an adult, I retroactively liked her more as a child. Is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's that's actually a valid point. That's something we were keenly aware of going into the season. We, I think we probably referenced Cousin Oliver a few times, as well as a uh, half dozen <laughs> other examples of, a, of uh, child characters that ruin shows. Yeah. Um, but it was an interesting um, jigsaw puzzle we were facing going into the season because the big question we had to answer was who is going to be the next witness? Who is going to be uh, the uh, person who stepped into Abby's shoes. And the answer is no one. No one's going to take that place. No one's going to take her place, either emotionally or, or um, as a character on the show. It's just an impossible task to any, ask anyone to do. Um, so faced with that dilemma, we were going through these scenarios on what we can do. Well, and it occurred to us, there's two things actually we need to do. One is we need to find a new partner for Ichabod Crane. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, we also need to answer the question of who is the next witness, which is related to the mythology of the show. Now, up until now, that had been the one and the same person in the form of Abby Mills. But it occurred to us, well, what if we could separate those two? What if they don't have to be the same person? What if Crane could have a partner who is his peer and equal, but then there's someone else as a witness? Once you separate those two things out, it becomes a much more interesting equation. And then, once you did that, then we started cycling through, well, if it doesn't have to be Crane's partner, who else could it be? Could it be, uh, could it be a, a, a man, another man? Could it be uh, someone older than him? Could it be, and all these things, and we went through all these things, and it occurred to us the most interesting thing was if it was a child. That's when we started talking about the Cousin Oliver Syndrome. It's like, well, then you're stuck with a 10-year-old who's uh, at some point or another has to stand shoulder to shoulder with Crane and fight demons and wield weapons and all these things that were going to be really awkward for us to do. So the first part of it was figuring out who the next witness was to be once we settled on that as a child. Then we had to figure out, well, how are we going to resolve that in the course of the season? Because we can't have that situation go on for that long. And that's when we started, that's when we came up with the idea of 
figuring out a way to age her up really quickly without having to sacrifice the actors we'd invested in all season long. It's very and so that's very kind clever. of the process that it came up. Yeah, it's yeah. very clever. I mean, so, what? Yeah, your original splitting up the the witness and the partner and. I mean, these are all very clever solutions, which, which amazed me because it, it. I felt in season three, like the the series was out of ideas. So, this is this is remarkable. Yeah, no, and that's fair because season three was, uh, I won't say an orphan, but it ended up being a season that we were caught in between stuff we had done in the first two seasons. Because to be honest, seasons one and two really were one long season. Right. You know, season one was was uh, had thirteen episodes and. Um, ended on a giant cliffhanger, which was, yeah. we picked up minutes afterwards in season two. So it's the same big bad, same kind of characters, the same arcs that followed through. So that's really one long season. Uh, and then season three, like I said, that sort of ended up getting caught a little bit in between um, as to, well, where do we go from there? Um, plus, uh, there were some production challenges we had uh, regarding the show that... Uh, also dictated some of the creative choices we had to make. So it it was it ended up being a little bit neither here nor there. Now that said, I'm I'm very happy with a lot of the stuff we did do. In the I, just, I was uh, going to say, if I may, as as a as a massive defender of the show, I'm going to throw in on season three for a second. Um, I thought. My the only real issue that I had with season three as a fan, and it wasn't even an issue per se. Um, I thought Pandora was an amazingly fascinating character. Her mm-hmm. boss, not so much. Mm-hmm. And yeah. after, and after, after Henry. God, please tell me I got his name right. Henry Parrish? Yes, after Henry. Yes. Okay, I just want to make sure. I'm horrible yes. with things. I want to make sure I got the first name right. After Henry, even though he was a god, he felt kind of like personality-wise, I should say, a bit of a step down. But right. I still, I still loved, I still loved the entire season, and I think I, I talked to not just Scott but a few other people who shied away um, from the show as during the second and third season, and the one chief I won't say complaint but the one comment that they kept making and I tried fighting I really did was they felt that. While it, while it was still interesting, it lost the sense of fun that the first season had. I didn't think that was a problem, but I do have to say this season, again with the reboot, is the most fun the show has been since the first year. Well, thank you. Yeah, and that's something we were aware of as well going into the season. And it's one of the reasons, and, a lot, and I know that before the season started, there was a lot of concern when when uh, people heard we were moving the setting of the show to Washington D.C. and away from Sleepy Hollow, um, which was a big deal given that the show itself is called Sleepy Hollow. But um, <laughs> one of the things we were keenly aware of is we wanted to get back to some of that fun from season one that you're talking about. And and when we looked at at that, we realized a lot of that had to do with Crane being that proverbial fish out of water, him being in a stranger in a strange land. And learning for the first time everything from what a Starbucks is to um, you know donuts and all, all of that fun stuff and OnStar. Um, and by season four, it had gotten a little bit tired because he wasn't able to react that way to a lot of stuff. He'd gotten very comfortable, frankly, in Sleepy Hollow with the surroundings, with the town, with the people there. So one of the things we thought that uh, would be good for the character in the show was to shake it all up, get him back out. Um, on uneven footing again so that he could 
respond that way again, be that character again where everything is fresh for him. So, um, And then when you start to think about where that would be, Washington, D.C. seemed to be the most logical place to go, given that the show was about the foundations of American democracy and the founding fathers. So we introduced him to a new setting. We introduced him to new characters, uh, all these new situations, and that allowed us to get back to a lot of what that people loved about the character and, and the show in the first place. So that was all, that was our thinking behind um, resetting the show in a new location and with new characters. So uh, I'm glad that it sounds like it, it, it worked to a large extent. Well, part of, part of the fun, I think, is that, is that he's moved on from being flummoxed by, say, technology to culture, mm-hmm. to a cultural matter. For, yes. and, and, and I don't remember what episode, exactly what, what the thing was, but um, they're, they're talking in, in the in the the library and and uh uh jake says something goes uh, and i'll just paraphrase it and and well maybe water is the demon's kryptonite and crane says or the thing he's vulnerable to and then <laughs> yes. which is funny and then he catches oh no it's the, the the superman thing i get it so it's like oh right so, right he's he's doing the captain america thing he's like he's he's like got a a uh he's got a netflix subscription and and you know he goes to comic uh he, he reads a lot of comic books he's trying to catch up so like Exactly. And a lot of that is, is not, you're right, it's not necessarily about just giving him even newer and newer technologies to react off of, but it's, it's the characters that you set him up with. I mean, the other thing that we thought would be great about having um, a kid as one of the regular characters is having Crane interact with a child. We, there was yes. an episode last season when we had him, one of the cases of the week ha- involved a little girl. Yeah. And Tom Meisen was so great interacting with her. And there was a scene when he went to a classroom, the uh, the kid's classroom, and sort of had to, it was in, in the course of investigating a demon and finding out which of the kids were losing teeth because it was a demonic tooth fairy. Mm-hmm. And he was, Tom was just so great in that scene, interacting with kids and, and, and being Tom, that we thought, well, we just need to get back to that somehow. So having a kid as a regular was... was uh, a great way to do that and that way we got to predict about crane in, in situations like kids birthday parties and or, uh, kids or soccer children's games. theater children's theater, <laughs> children's oh, theater. I love exactly. that. So. that was great he was acting he was reacting the way uh 18th and 19th century audiences did he was they That's hollered, right. they hollered back they were very demonstrative they stomped their feet i, I love the fact that he was looking around at these people who were could were just holding up their phones and were not yes. otherwise reacting i thought that's right i love crane <laughs> yeah, it's like that's when he says that's when he says this is not a morgue, this is a theater. Yeah, I love that. Um, and it was one of those jokes that uh, you know we knew that it relied a bit on uh, trusting the audience's intelligence and knowledge of, of what yep. you were saying. Like that's what theater was like back in his day, and uh, we had to trust that that would that would go over well because uh, that's exactly how Crane was acting. It was funny to us without having to have him sit down and actually out for Diana that you know I like when you watch Shakespeare at the Globe and things like that right. so yeah those are situations that were all made possible by having this new character and these new, new um, characters for him to bounce off and speaking of new characters we do need to I think we I do really want to discuss on um, this season's big bad played by Jeremy Davies I have only the last time I saw him. This is a true story, and I hate. I feel bad about this, but this is true. The last thing I remember him from is what, from one of the first things I think he did. That movie, spanking the monkey. Uh-huh. So you don't remember like, him from Lost? 
Oh my God! Lost? You're right. You're right. You're right. It was spanking the monkey and lost. Those are the two things. So yeah. when when he popped up, when I saw his name in the credits for this, I was like, Oh man, that's awesome! And again, this season, much like the previous seasons, your big bads are very interesting and multifaceted. Now, as interesting as Jeremy Davies is the character that I am in love with, and I want a solo episode on. I want his freaking backstory. Is Job? Yeah. Job I is great. love he, Job. Uh, we all we all love him, Kamar de, de los Reyes. Um, we would have loved to have, and many many times over the course of the season, we talked about doing a Job episode and come up with stories. One of the things I regret that we had to cut out of that episode you just watched, um, and it was purely a matter of time, and, and because there's so much packed into that episode, we had scenes involving La- uh, Laura and Job in the future. And you see Ooh. kind of where Job ends up. And um, uh, it, was, it was the last cuts made, and it really pained me to take them out because it was great. You see that, and it helps set some stuff up for the finale, but you see that um, Job, as a henchman, was really, really useful for Malcolm Dreyfus uh, up till the point he raises the four horsemen. Now, when you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse as your enforcers, <laughs> what do you do with sort of your garden variety dean? So Job ends up getting, in the future, gets up getting a little bit pushed to the side, and he ends up being kind of a glorified librarian. He's the one who actually tends to that collection you see in the episode of oh. all the mystical artifacts that Dreyfus has set up there. Okay. Um, and he's, he's the one who was meant to, like, sort of, uh, he's been charged with collecting all the mystical artifacts and tomes in the world. Some of them raided and plundered from the archives and the vault, our, our heroes resources and collected there in what used to be Dreyfus's lair um, and you saw some of his and he ends up being kind of a bit of a um, the nanny for Laura he helped raise Laura in a lot of ways oh um, and so uh, they have a pretty good relationship and bond in the future um, it's not that Job gets all that softened in the future but he's he's not all that happy with where he ends up now again we had to cut it from episode which was unfortunate there are still echoes of it in the season finale which you'll see um and at some point it would have been great to actually have had an entire job episode but we just we had 13 episodes this season and I, I would have done more episodes solely set in the future timeline but you know that was not something we could that would have been interesting because just that that opening that whole opening sequence in um in last week's episode i i'm just sitting there going all right this is I, I, mm-hmm. I'm kind of into this. I, I want to know who these resistance leaders. This is kind of cool. All right. And then when that when the horseman shows up and we see that that it's mom, I was sitting there going, "Wait, what's this? Is the setup for? Okay." I, it took me a minute to figure out where they were, where that scene was in the timeline. And then once I figured it out, I'm like, "I see what they're doing. God damn, this show's awesome." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fun, and one of the um, inspirations for it, one of the things, I don't know if you uh, you guys ever watched Dollhouse. Josh, oh, yeah. Josh mm-hmm. Whedon's oh, show. Yeah. Um, and he produced an episode at the end of season one that I don't think ever actually aired um, called Epitaph One. Um, oh, yeah, that was on the, on the DVD, DVD set. Yep, yep, yep. Yes, it was the sort of mythical 13th yep. episode of that season, and it showed what happens to... Uh, when that world is extrapolated into the future, um, and there's resistance, it's a lot like that. And, and and it was one of those episodes that always stuck with me. It was like very cool and kind of showed you 
consequences for a lot of the choices made within the course of the series. Um, and so when we were building this particular episode, I thought a lot about Epitaph 1 and how that worked and even the look and feel of it in a lot of ways when we were filming this. Um, so that was kind of a, a direct inspiration to that. Uh, one thing I, I want to say also about Jeremy Davies, because he's fabulous, and yes. uh, I'm glad you remembered him from Lost because he was amazing there. Yes. Uh, we, had, um, we were doing a panel at New York Comic Con last year, and uh, uh, we were up there, and Jeremy was one that was with us as well. And as we we're backstage going through sort of the maze-like um, quarters of the convention way, panel, we ran into Angela Lilly, who uh, is one of Jeremy's close friends from Lost. Okay. And uh, when we took the stage, she came on the stage with us sort of as a surprise bonus guest. And so Jeremy <laughs> introduced Evangeline Lilly uh, to a very surprised and, and uh, happy crowd uh, right. who for a split second thought that she had somehow joined Sleepy Hollow. Uh, <laughs> and they thought they were getting the scoop on something. But he, he, was, uh, he was terrific. He also came to us because he had a guest role last season on um, Lucifer. And Len Wiseman, who's one of the creators of Sleepy Hollow and executive producer, is also executive producer of Lucifer. And he was just talking about how amazing he was. So he was one of the first people we thought of for, for our big bat for the season. Well, he's very, and, I mean, I think the first time I saw him was in Saving Private Ryan. Oh, that's yes. right. Oh, wow. Right. And Jeff, if you yes. recall, we just talked about a few episodes ago, we talked about uh, Ravenous. And he was in that. Oh, that's mm -hmm. right. His, 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 the big freakout moment. That's, yeah. oh, man. Okay, forget everything I said. I remember him now. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he's an amazing actor. He has an amazing body of work. Um, and so, yeah, all of those things occur, occurred to us. I think for genre fans, like, like uh, I was saying, a lot of them will remember him from Lost. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, Saving Private Ryan, Spanking the Monkey, and other guests. And just, he won an Emmy for Justified. Oh, oh, that's right. wow! Right. I he forgot was, about uh, that. He wasn't justified. Right, something better. Yeah, Dickie Bennett. That's right. Yeah. Oh, something. yeah. And speaking and speaking of big bads, I cannot. We cannot discuss your episode without talking about the return of the baby boy. I was not <laughs> expecting. I was not expecting that at all. So when John Noble popped up, I, the show, and this has not happened. I think since season one your episode made me audibly cheer twice <laughs> the first time uh, the first time was when henry appeared and the second time of course during the in inside crane's head i'm um, seeing we are witnesses you're right we are stab yeah no thanks uh, the, uh, henry john noble i mean uh, you can never have too much of john noble you just want no. him all the time um, so when we started talking at the beginning of the season of, of bringing him back, we did the earlier episode in the season where you have him uh, appear in the psychic courtroom scene. And that was just a one-off. But we knew we needed more of him, and we had to set things up. And uh, if people recall that episode, it ends with a little bit of a tease where you see Henry's face in the jar of goo that they had saved. See, okay, um, so it was Henry's. We weren't sure. Yeah. My buddy who watches the episode with me and I, we were obsessing over that sequence because we could not figure out whose face was in the goo. Okay, that makes more sense now. All right. Yeah, that was Henry's goo. It had been his essence. The 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 story we had set up in our heads was that his, Henry's essence had been trapped 
in the in the goo, which the team thinks is inert because they've killed it in this bear creature. Right, right. But uh, we we um, um, decided that uh, since all birth is the, is is stems from the mingling of various fluids, <laughs> in our world we mingle the unholy fluids of the Horseman of War's blood with Despair's goo, and voila, Henry is reborn. So um, that was our little plot way to get him back in the show. But, you know, the bigger thing is we just need, wanted the character and the actor there, especially for the last two episodes of the season. So um, we, were, we were really looking forward to, to bringing him back. Um, and personally, it was just great to have John, John, John back on the set. It was so much fun. He is, he is a... It's, it's seriously... He's a prince among men. He is one of the nicest people you could possibly meet and work with. I recommend it highly for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember uh, when the when the psychic courtroom episode um, aired and he was back. You know, I was I was bouncing up and down the walls, and I completely I don't know how I don't know why I completely missed his name in the credits. That's so good. I'm he, sure so, yeah, exactly. better as a surprise. So. Yeah, when he when he popped up, I was just I was completely, yay! <laughs> so now then, I, um, yeah. No, I would have loved it if it had been a complete surprise for everyone. But knowing how marketing departments work and promotions work, I, I knew once we put him in that the first thing you'd see in a commercial for the episode was going to be Henry. Right. So we had to resign ourselves to that. But still, you know, we we planned the story for that to be a, a bit of a jolt at the end of the second act. And uh, so I'm glad to hear that at least you were surprised by it. Oh, dude, like the whole the, the whole last two episodes, I mean, pretty much from now, I am proud of myself. I, I did figure out uh, who adult Molly was before not too much farther before the big reveal, but early enough that I was proud of myself. Very good. But and then, you, what tipped yeah, you off? The next twist. I don't know. I don't know. I I I wish I could say that something specific tipped me off, but we knew that there was this future, and I just started thinking. And, and we knew she knew everybody. And I my thought was, could it be? Is it? it, it yeah, that was a fine. That was a fine line to walk because you want to you want to be able to you want it to be a big surprise, of course, but you yep. want people to then one of the. Those surprises when people look back and 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 rewatch the episode or think about it, say, "Oh, those little clues were all there," you know, kind of in the sixth sense kind of way. Right. You want people to say that, so it had to have that um, tricky thing of being both surprising and yet inevitable. Uh, and the other thing that was even more challenging in our case um, was the fact that, um, frankly, when you're casting an actor who has to look like uh, Unayafi. Um, uh, it's it's tricky and could be a dead giveaway, you know. So uh, we we had to be very careful about doing that. And luckily, we found you know a great actress in Seychelle Gabriel. Um, and I'm surprised that more people didn't pick up on it once they saw her because it, it would have been easy to say, oh yeah, that looks like you know grown up grown up Molly. Or it, you know. when it got to the grand reveal, when it got to the big reveal, I still sat there and went, oh. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All righty then. But then, but then, of course, as per usual with Sleepy Hollow, it pulled the rug out from under my eyes when Crane got shot. That final scene in that episode, when it got to the end credits, my friend Walter and I, Walter's who I watched the show with, we bo- we screamed at the TV. I was not expecting. <laughs> I was not expecting Crane to get shot with the. With not the, at all. The dystopian dueling pistol of doom. 
I love it. Oh, I'm glad that it. I'm glad that all landed the way it should have. Yeah, it's well, one of those things. Sleepy Hollow was going back to the first scene, always known for going really big with its twists and turns, and you know, sort of bold storytelling. And that's something we um, really wanted to honor and, and keep doing here. And so that's the kind of stuff I, you want to do. What I always compared the first season of the show to, and I had brought it back this season, is. Um, the show in the beginning and the season reminded me very much of my favorite years of the original Dark Shadows, just batshit insane. <laughs> but in a good wow, way. I mean that completely reference. in a good way. I do. And I, it was about, like, I'd say halfway through the first season, I was like, this is my Dark Shadows. I didn't get to watch the original Dark Shadows. This is my Dark Shadows. It's supernatural, and it's batshit crazy. And That's a great reference. This season, I think, really has gotten back to just the pure fun. I, I hate using the word fun again, but it is an, an, an appropriate word. Insanity of the overall concept. And I, that's been the most fun for me this year is just being able to go, wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> so, I'm glad. I mean, and it's one of those things that's ref uh, that reflects the story-breaking process. Too. We had fun doing it. That's the I bet. Thing. We had a lot of fun with the season, breaking and writing all the episodes and shooting them. And I think that ends up being reflected in the final product. So that's and that's true, I think, with every show and every creative endeavor, really. I have to I have to compliment uh, one thing that you guys have done. I mean, in the first season, I was it was, you know, the, 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 the lore was insane and it was all it was all a, a lot of fun and it was very gripping. But but whenever there's somebody working to end the world to bring about the apocalypse of it. You know, one, you know, it's not going to happen. Uh, and two, you just, who cares? Uh, it's, just, <laughs> it's just something about it. Just the world keeps ending in, in these movies. So it's kind of dull. But this, the, the future they're trying to prevent here, where you have some billionaire who uses extra constitutional means to become a tyrant, seems oddly possible. <laughs> I don't know what it is, yeah. but it just, it's just, and I, it's like, okay, this one scares me. I'm actually, I yeah. actually really am scared of this world. So, kudos. yeah, I mean, without getting too political, this is these are stories that we um, thought of and broke previous to the election. Yeah, I figured. But at the same time, we were drawing upon threads and themes and concerns and anxieties that that had been hovering out there for everyone. I mean, the idea of a billionaire in the first half of the season, Malcolm Dreyfus's goal. It's a very human goal. He wants to live forever. He wants mm -hmm. immortality. And we did some research and found out, uh, you guys probably are aware of this, but like, there's a bunch of tech billionaires who are after that very goal right now, led particularly by Peter Thiel, who has an uh, ongoing serious effort to find immortality, or as he says it, to cure death. The singularity. Um, wanna... Yeah, so he's, he's very much into this um, endeavor, as are a lot of other billionaires, very famous names, which are easy to find, so it wasn't that it wasn't that um, uh, heightened to speculate that there would be a billionaire big bad who would be going for that. Now we added our Sleepy Hollow twist to it by saying that he'd sold his soul to the devil, so he had much more urgency in order to find a cure for death. But uh, a lot of these threads, like I said, were taken from the real world, and it sort of pays off in the payoff. <laughs> now, um, at, at, at this this our little chat is airing the uh, is going live the day that the finale airs. So, um, those of you listening right now, if you're not watching the show, you've got um, 
most of the day to catch up. It's on Hulu. <laughs> Watch the whole damn thing. Um, what what can you oh so evilly tease me about the finale? Ah, uh, well, one thing is um, you get to, you get a glimpse of the four horsemen of the apocalypse rising in episode twelve, and that's set in the future world, right? But in four thirteen in the finale, you see them go all out and uh, ride on the earth. You know, something that we've been talking about since episode 101, really, uh, before Horsemen of the Apocalypse. So um, that was really fun to do. And it was interesting also, even just from a production design standpoint, because we've seen War and we've seen Headless, obviously. And we saw a glimpse of the other two in a vision from season one. But since then, and that was arguably a dream. Um, so we had to actually design the uh, Horsemen of Pestilence and Famine which was a, a lot of fun for every department. And every, every, every department was involved. It was, it was costume, it was makeup, it was stunts, it was every uh, production design. And so we got to design those final two horsemen, and then you see them kick ass in the finale. So that's one thing that's a lot of fun. Uh, and um, the other thing is, uh, I'm trying to remember if they show him in the next week on. I think they do. Can't remember, so I'm not sure if it's a spoiler or not. But there's a uh, another special guest star we have who <clears throat> ends up being someone that Crane and Diana have to go see in the in their quest to defeat Dreyfus, which was really really exciting uh, to have. So you know, watch out for a little scene with a special actor for an even more villainous character Ooh. who may or may not come back if we come back. So. That was actually going to be my next question. Do you know? I don't. I honestly yeah. don't. We um, haven't heard anything. Uh, we do know that both the Studio Network were very happy creatively with the show and everything that we've all been discussing right now. So they've been uh, thrilled with all of that. Um, but aside from that, it's not everything is up in the air. We haven't heard anything. You know, it's a big, complicated formula depending upon how the pilots work out which are going on right now, right. Uh, what happens with the shows they introduced this particular season. So we just have to wait and see along with everyone else. Um, m my guess is, you know, we probably won't hear until right before they have to make those announcements in May. Now, what's really complicated this year is th there's the possibility there might be a writer's strike. So right. if that happens, that's going to throw a lot of plans for not just our show, but for a lot of different shows and productions um, it's going to throw them for a loop. So who knows what that means for everything. Hope you like reality so, shows, yeah. people, because you're about to choke <laughs> on them. Yeah, the real housewives uh, of the puke. Yay. Yeah, it's very grim, but who knows? I mean, literally, the you know, you guys are probably aware we're getting news hour by hour from the guild about stuff going on there. So fingers uh, crossed it's not going to happen, but who knows? Uh, understood understood well all right sir um actually i have i have one more question for you before i let you go and, and so do I'm i oh excellent sure. okay scott you go first you, okay. you do your question first okay well i i had some questions uh uh sent in from uh, some of our listeners on twitter oh you got some excellent actually cool. actually we talked about most of that so i'll just ask my final question actually two two questions um one is um Will the score ever feature Can I Get a Witness by Marvin Gaye? God! 
You know what? I'm trying to think if that one came up because it seems like it should. We talk a lot about needle drops on the show, and mm-hmm. and, and uh, the sad, the reality is, and I don't know how how aware people are. You know, they they they're expensive. Needle drops yeah. are expensive. They yeah. depending on the uh, artist and the catalog it comes from, it can be uh, inordinately expensive. Um, so I, I do think that one has come up. I don't know whether that didn't work because it didn't fit in creatively or whether that was a cost thing. Um, but we've, we've talked about a lot of things. It was funny for the season premiere this year, uh, which I wrote, um, there was a sequence right in the very beginning when Crane looks up and finds that he's in Washington DC and it was supposed to mirror the scene from the pilot when he gets knocked down by a truck. And then, uh, what, plays the Sympathy for the Devil, the Rolling Stone Sympathy for the Devil, yeah. which we've echoed a few times on the show, right? Yep. So I wanted something else that was along those lines, but not exactly Sympathy for the Devil again. So we cycled through a whole bunch of things. Um, and, uh, and we ended up using um, Superstition. Um, it was a cover of Superstition, and it, it worked pretty well. Um, but there were a bunch of songs we went through. Some we couldn't get because it was way too much money and some there's some songs that are perfect that the artist just refuses to license i mean it's that's that's the sad truth also there which is why people not, may not be aware there are some songs you've probably never heard on tv shows or movies because of that dumb old artists. so uh <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of hurdles involved in getting specific cues in, in certain cases Okay, and here's my last question, uh, based and this is based on on the story you told earlier. Um, when you sit on the Sleepy Hollow panel at Comic Con now, do you look out over the audience like a Sith Lord and think, "What of you will replace me?" <laughs> Scott, okay. uh, absolutely. I, I feel like the Nazgul up there. So you <laughs> have to think that, right? <laughs> no. Um, the funny thing about sitting on sleep at a Comic Con panel is. Usually the lights are so bright you can't see a thing out there. It's mm. just like this black blob, um, and and you kind they they kind of dim it down when people line up for Q and A, uh, but even then it's really hard to make out. So all it actually helps because it means that it's hard to get too nervous because you're you're standing in front of a blob of humanity out there and you sort of know people are out there but you can't get a sense of how many thousands are out there. But uh, so your mind does wander and you start thinking of well maybe now is the time to you know, assert my dark powers, but you know, <laughs> luckily you refrain. All right. Now here is my final question for you, sir. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite movie? If you could pick one film. Yeah. You can pick a genre, a, spe- a specific genre. If you like, I just want to know a movie that you absolutely love. Well, that's always a tough question because it's so reductive and, you know, there's a way to answer it, answer it in many different ways. And different films have had different impact on Absolutely. me at different stages of my life. But, you know, whenever I think back to the movie that absolutely changed my life, it always comes back to Star Wars. Oh. I mean, Star Wars came at a time in my life that it not only opened my eyes to what could be done with science fiction, fantasy, genre stuff, but just what could be done with movies and 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 story. And the tip, I mean, it sounds corny, but it was the power of storytelling. I, I back then, it's hard, and and I'm sure other people have pointed this out. You know, if you were a science fiction fan in the late '70s, early '80s, late early to mid '70s, really, um, 
there was some good there was some really cool stuff up there but like you were watching Planet of the Apes in 2001 yep. and yep. and uh, and movies like that which were dark they were really dark and for a little kid it's not like you can go I remember my friends and I used to go out and pretend to be Planet of the Apes that's what we that's what we role played as right oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. because that's all nice. we knew right nice. and then Star Wars arrives on the scene and it was like this the biggest breath of fresh air you could possibly imagine and you're like oh my god that's that, and then you know after that it, it changed uh, the way movies are made culture society all that and well, it just you know came at that right point in my life for me but you know what sucked about that is once we started playing Star Wars in the late 70s I always got stuck with playing Chewbacca because I was the tallest kid around <laughs> I, I wanted to play I uh, always wanted to play Han Solo but they always made me play the Wookiee because I was too tall I like Chewbacca but I mean I'm you know I'm eight years old going wow got kind of boring after a while you know now now that you mention it that's absolutely true there was some good adult very smart science fiction in the early mid 70s but it was hard to role play I mean aside from playing games I mean what, what are, you gonna, are you gonna role play silent running I mean you, you silent running was another movie I remember I watched it I thought it was really cool Yep. But when you're a kid and you absorb it a completely different way, they're yeah. very they're very ponderous, they're very heavy, they're very message oriented. Silent Running was all about ecological disasters and stuff I like that. I want to be Edward um, Robinson's character in Soylent Green. <laughs> exactly. There were there, those are the those are the kinds of you know Logan's Run was kind yeah. of fun and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, but when you're a kid, hungry for stories to play out and act out, um, it was it was you know slim pickings. For, yeah. for kids back then and uh, and Star Wars changed everything changed the conversation and so it, it, it hit me like a bomb like nothing else did and so that's I've always got to come back to that when I talk about you know most influential favorite movies it's certainly first, the movie I've seen the most times oh, yeah. in my life I mean that's first not gen, was say first gen Star Wars babies unite yes exactly that's, <laughs> that's what I'm I mean it's, it's, it's cool to watch people you know the millions of people have become fans since, and at different stages in their life, whether they watched it on DVD or VHS or however they came to it. But there's, there's a, you know, for me and my generation, yep. who were able to see it in the theaters mm-hmm. when it arrived. Yep. Um, you know, people forget what movies were like back then. You didn't line up for movies back then. You didn't go to first weekend opening no. of movies back then. You did, all of that stuff was new. There was nothing like that back then. And so, and and now it's all commonly accepted reality. But if, but that's all because of Star Wars, um, both business wise and creatively. So yeah, seventies movies. There's a great thing. There's a great um, retrospective to be done on seventies era sci-fi because there really were really cool, interesting things being done. But they were all very bleak and, and dystopian in a lot of ways. And um, we're kind of going back to that stuff now. But uh, yeah, you know. That's, that's uh, interesting because it was, that, the other day. it was that post-Vietnam thing, that po- post-Vietnam failure of the counterculture malaise, and now we're kind of in a similar headspace met- yeah. nationally. I was just talking to a friend the other day about uh, a boy and his dog. Remember that? Yeah, oh, with, uh, Don yeah, Johnson. Don yeah. Johnson. Don and Jason Johnson, you know, based, on the, based on the Harlan Ellison short story or novella. Yeah. And uh, it's a really cool world. It's a really cool movie. It's bleak as hell yeah um but uh that was the kind of stuff we had you know until star wars came along um and you could argue that the pendulum swung a little too far the other way after star wars but you know you're right now we're kind of back into that that dystopian mode again 
Um, so, you know, science fiction swings with the times as, with, as does everything else. Indeed. Indeed. Well, all right, sir. We have taken far too much of your time. Ladies and gentlemen, as I said, the season finale of Sleepy Hollow airs tonight at what time, Mr. Kim? 9 p.m., uh, depending on where you are. We're 9 p.m. on the East Coast and West Coast. <laughs> tonight so like i said if you're not watching the show uh, season three uh, four is on hulu you can watch the whole thing before the finale airs you want to this has been a great season albert thank you so much thanks guys a lot of as fun. a fan as a fan um this has been a true honor i am going to keep fingers and extremities crossed for another season uh, the show really this reboot worked you guys did a phenomenal job with it. I hope you can continue on telling stories. Absolutely. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And, uh, yes, thank you very much. And thank you, guys. And we will see you all very soon. Do, 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 do. Slumgullions. We still got some guests on the Slumgullions. We're not showing breasts on the Slumgullions. Should probably fade on the Slumgullions. 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 Slumgullions.